My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our scripture readings today are all pieces of a story about two brothers, um, Jacob and Esau, and we will be uh, reading significant chunks of their story and and be considering it in our in our sermon this morning. The first reading comes from Genesis chapter twenty five, and we're reading uh, verses twenty one through thirty four. If you have one of the standard um, NIV Bibles, it's on. It starts on page um, thirty eight. Otherwise, you can see the words on the screen here. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first one to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau, which means hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, and so he was given the name Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Jacob, but Rebekah loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, and he was famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that, that, red, that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some of the lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, and then he got up and he left. And so Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading is also from the book of Genesis, and we are um, jumping around a little bit in Genesis chapter 32 and verse and chapter 33. First we're reading Genesis 33, starting in verse 3. It's on page 51. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Sire, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, and I have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and male goats and male and female servants. And now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find grace in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming out to meet you. And 400 men are with him. 
In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. And he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, then the group that is left, they can escape. And then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am, I am unworthy of all of the kindness and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan River, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, along with the mothers and their children. But you have said, I will make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now in chapter 33, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children in the front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead, and he bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and he saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children that God has graciously given to your servant. And then the female servants and their children approached and bowed. And next, Leah and her children came and bowed. And last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed as well. Esau asked, well, so what's the meaning of all these flocks and these herds that I have met? In order to find grace in your eyes, my Lord, Jacob responded. But Esau said, "I, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found grace in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all that I need. Because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. As most of y'all know, I think, um, I am the oldest of Three brothers in my family. Um, Jonathan, who we call Jay, he's the middle brother. He's 25. The youngest is Sammy. He's 20. He's actually getting married uh, at Christmas. We're all very excited about that. And my brothers were my, they're my very first best friends. Our family moved from Florida to Utah when I was about 10 years old across the country. And as often the case with those moves, um, we children struggled to make friends for a year, even a couple years. And during this time, the three of us were, were really inseparable. We did absolutely everything together. We played sports. We traded Pokemon cards, climbed trees, all the sorts of things that kids did in the early 2000s. Until we were like teenagers, like we barely had separate memories um, because we were just all present for everything, like attached at the hip. And now that we've gotten older, uh, my brothers are, they're still my best friends. We, it's different, obviously. We live in different places. We have spouses. Um, we have, we're in different social circles, but we still talk and chat all the time. We meet up as often as we possibly can for some ferociously competitive disc golf. So, so I both love and like my brothers. We've got that, we've got that unshakable family bond. Um, and we genuinely enjoy each other's company. And it, it's a huge blessing. One of the most obvious blessings. I think, in my life. But, but that's not to say that the relationship between brothers um, is not complicated in many ways. Uh, we, growing up, we were very similar to one another. We, 
Uh, we, were, we were athletes. We, we had a lot of the same goals. We wanted to excel in the same things. And in a lot of ways, this was fertile ground for things like pride, rivalry, anger, in certain instances. I remember one particularly weird intense moment between me and Jonathan. Um, if I had to guess, I, I think I was like 13 and he was 15. And we were sitting in the living room on one of those hot, hot, hot summer afternoons in Florida. And maybe he had just beaten me in one-on-one basketball or something because somehow the topic of the conversation turned to who was stronger, like, like physically, physically stronger. And Jay was essentially saying to me, if I remember correctly, and he would maybe correct me if uh, once he hears this story recorded, but I'm just doing my best. He essentially says something to me like, okay, sure, big brother, you have been bigger than me up to this point, but I am catching up to you. I wouldn't be surprised if I passed you pretty quickly. In other words, your days of the alpha around here are numbered, is basically how I took it. Um, and I just remember responding something like, okay, dude, sure, you started to go through puberty. Congratulations on your fuzzy little mustache and your voice cracks. <laughs> I still own you. That was a pity win that I gave you in one-on-one. You are nowhere near my level, and it's not looking like you're going to get there anytime soon. And we went back and forth a bit, Jay being like, dude, are you serious? I'm not a little kid anymore. I can totally hold my own against you, and me just scoffing at him. And it went on long enough that um, eventually I said, I think jokingly, uh, bro, if I wanted to, I could, I could throw you out of the house, like right now, like physically pick you up and, and toss you out of the house. Are you serious? No, you could not. Maybe when I was six, I just made varsity basketball. There's no flipping way you could just throw me out of the house. In fact, I'd like to see you try. And so I threw him out of the house. Um, it, it took some effort, but I was, still, I was still a lot bigger and stronger than him at that point. And I think at the time I justified it in my own head as just fun and games or putting the kid back in his place, maybe even teaching him humility or something. But by the time I let him back in the house, he was, he was crying those kind of like tears of burning fury that only scorned 13 year old boys uh, can cry. And as I was writing out this story for the sermon this week, I, as a 27 year old man, looking back at it, uh, I realized just how bad I look in, in this story and just how weird and immature that kind of like chest beating behavior really was. Uh, and now, thankfully, those sort of tense, charged moments in our relationship, they stayed isolated in weird memories from childhood. They never took root. They didn't spread. They didn't grow into anything genuinely toxic or destructive. And I like to think that my brothers and I have a much more mature relationship in adulthood. We, we are still ferociously competitive, but uh, we look out for each other more often than not. We're much more considerate than we used to be. None of us has felt the need to physically best the other um, in quite a while. But I do think that growing up with brothers, all, all of the awesome things and some of these weird tense moments as well, has made me really interested in the stories of brothers that are all over the, all over the place in the book of Genesis. Brother, brothers are, are all over the place in this book. They're at the beginning, throughout the middle, they're at, they're at the end. In some ways, the stories about brothers kind of, kind of tie the book together. They unite, they unite and bring to completion a lot of the, the themes and the motifs. Um, I, I think that Genesis uses stories about brothers as a, as a vehicle, as a tool to help us think about human relationships in general, to explore really intense themes of, of anger and violence and guilt and forgiveness and love. How these things are at play in brotherly relationships, but also human relationships more broadly speaking, and even between the relationship between God and humanity. 
That's not to say Genesis in the Bible doesn't use other relationships for this purpose as well, right? Uh, The relationship between Rachel and Leah that was mentioned in this reading, um, for instance, both of whom are married to Jacob. It's one of the most tortured and complex and strange relationships in the Bible. Um, And of course, there are important mother-son relationships, husband and wife, friends, uh, but, but relationships between brothers. That is a very clear and important theme in the first book of the Bible, and we're going we're gonna to look at it in some depth this morning. The, the first story about brothers in the Bible, you may know it, is the story of Cain and Abel. And that one is a, is a tragedy. It's, it's gut-wrenching, actually. It's horrible. It'll make you sick to your stomach if you spend too much time thinking about it. It's, if, it's as if you took all of, the, all of the potentially toxic elements of a brother's relationship, rivalry, pride, and violence, and you just turned it up to a 10, and then you just let it run. Just let it run out of control. Um, Cain and Abel both prepare an offering for the Lord. Cain from his livestock, Abel from the first fruits of the land. Uh, the text tells us that God has regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain's offering, God has no regard. Cain is furious. He invites his younger brother to go out into the field with him, and he kills him. And when God comes and he asks Cain, where is Abel? Where is, where is your brother? Cain responds, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And as an oldest brother myself, like Cain, that line really gets me and really breaks my heart. In some, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. That you're supposed to, to look out for him, protect him, and encourage him. That's what older brothers are supposed to do. And I think that we are supposed to hear that sort of implied, that silent yes at that moment in the story. Are we supposed to be our brother's keeper? Yes, love your neighbor. Jesus' most famous contribution to ethics is in some ways an answer to Cain's questions. Human beings, as far as God is concerned, are supposed to look out for one another, to think about the interests of others rather than to act on every selfish impulse that runs into our head. Um, We do not live and act in isolation, but we are connected by bonds of, of family and friends and community. We are indeed our brother's keeper. But at this point in the story, of Genesis, humanity has, has just been thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Sin has overtaken them, and conflict between humans east of Eden escalates quickly and inexorably to bloodshed. Hurt feelings leads to uh, violence, which leads to denial. There is there's just no semblance of love or mercy or grace in this first story of brothers. The second story of brothers in Genesis is about Jacob and Esau. And that's the story that was described in our various readings from this week. And man, oh man, the relationship between this pair of brothers, who were twins, actually, it was bound to be fraught from the very start. Uh, I've sort of broken it down into the three main scenes that we read in our scripture readings. The, the birth story of these two brothers is very strange. We read earlier, Genesis 25, 22 tells us that while they were in their mother Rebecca's womb, the twins wrestled within her. And the Hebrew word here could most literally be translated as the twins attempted to crush one another in the womb. And then God tells her that two nations are going to burst forth from her. The older is going to serve the younger. And finally, when Esau is born, he comes out first. He's covered in red hair. And right after him, with his hand clasped firmly on his brother's ankle, comes Jacob. And Jacob's name literally means the heel grabber, or less literally, usurper. And then later in the story, we learn that Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob the best. Isaac, the father, loved Esau the best. In other words, 
None of this has the makings of a peaceful and loving relationship between brothers, does it? No, if anything, this seems cursed for a disaster similar to Cain and Abel. The brothers Esau and Jacob, Jacob and Esau, they grow up and they become very different people. Jacob becomes what we might call today a sensitive boy. Uh, He likes to stay inside, read and cook, take it easy. He's also very smart. He's very ambitious. and He's devious. Esau, we would probably call like a simple kind of man, maybe a man's man. He's a hunter. We should imagine him with a broad and hairy chest. He liked to be outside. He liked to be physical. He liked to be active. And these two personalities, they they play out in the story about the bowl of soup and the birthright. In this story, Esau has been out in the open country. He's been working with his hands, hard labor, most likely. And he comes in to the smell of Jacob's wonderful cooking, wafting through the tent. And he stumbles into the kitchen and he says to Jacob, the Hebrew is really funny here. It's like he can barely speak. He's so hungry. He says something like, uh, give me some of that red, that red stuff that you're making. Give me some of it. He's a simple man. Jacob, though, Jacob's conniving. He decides to use these circumstances to his advantage. Sure, of course, of course, brother. You can have some of this red stuff, as I believe you referred to it as. Um, just, just promise me your birthright first. Now let's pause. We need to establish a little bit of background info here. Uh, primogeniture. It's a fancy-sounding word that just means that the firstborn inherits all of the authority, the resources, and the blessings of the father. Now, we moderns may find the practice of primogeniture a bit primitive backwards. I, for one, uh, I think it has some merit. I have recommended it to my family for consideration a time or two. But, uh, but regardless of our feelings about it, it was the way of doing things at this moment in history. It was assumed. It was natural. Um, and it did have some benefits, actually, when you think about it. It was, it was a very a simple and clean way to make sure that the family name and the family tribe grew in stature and influence over the course of generations rather than breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces. Um, it usually avoided violent conflicts over succession because it was just known who the successor was. Um, and it wasn't like the younger brothers and sisters were just thrown out on the streets. These were extended families. They were tribes. So they still got to, to live within and utilize the family resources. They just weren't in charge. And the family legacy didn't run through them. Um, and in the case of Isaac, of course, and this is very important, Isaac's, Jacob and Esau's father, his estate, so to speak, along with the cows and the tents and stuff, included the blessing of Yahweh the promise that God had made to Isaac's father, Abraham, that he would build him into a great nation and eventually bless all nations of the world through him. So the stakes are even higher than normal here in this story of Jacob and Esau. But within the cultural expectations of the time, Esau had every right to his inheritance and Jacob had no right, no claim whatsoever. But then Esau sells Jacob his birthright for a bowl of red stuff and and that changes everything. Now, now, maybe Esau thought that uh, the two of them were just messing around, which, which makes sense. I mean, you can't possibly insist on a bowl of soup exchange as being legally binding. Because in a bit of the brother's story that we didn't read today, uh, Jacob actually has to steal Esau's blessing later in their lives with a, with a sneaky, ingenious plan actually hatched up by his mama. Jacob's a mama's boy as well. Uh, J- Jacob, he puts on sheep's cloth in order to mimic the hairy, manly arms of his older brother. Um, and then he, he goes into the tent of his blind and dying father, Isaac, and he claims to be Esau. And when the blind Isaac feels the sheepskin on Jacob's arm, he believes that Esau is sitting in front of him. And so Isaac officially gives Jacob the birthright and the all-important blessing. 
and this one, that one is legally binding. And so when after Jacob has snuck out with the blessing, Esau returns and he asks his father to make the primogeniture official. Bless me, father, Esau says. But Isaac is distraught. He realizes what Jacob has done and he tells Esau that he has no blessing for him, no birthright for him. It has already been given to the heel grabber, to Jacob, to the usurper. The role that was rightfully his, that he'd been preparing for his whole life to carry on his father's legacy, to embrace the blessings of Yahweh. It's been stolen from him. It's been taken away by his pale, tent-dwelling younger brother. And then Genesis 27, verse 41 says, And so Esau hated his brother Jacob. And he said in his heart, My father is going to pass away soon, and then I'm going to rise up and I will kill my brother Jacob. Is the ghost of Cain and Abel haunting the sons of Isaac. And this brings us to our second reading from this morning, which was made up of pieces from Genesis 32 and 33. And the scene described in these chapters, it happens years and years after Jacob steals his brother's blessing, after Esau plotted Jacob's murder in his heart. Um, Rebekah, the mother, uh, had helped her beloved son escape in the middle of the night, and Jacob fled to the property of his uncle Laban, uh, where he worked for 14 years. And during this time, Jacob the deceiver the heel grabber, he, got, he gets a taste of his own medicine while he's working with Laban. Because Laban was also, he had the family gene for trickster, for sneakiness. Um, and, and he tricked Jacob multiple times into periods of indentured servitude. But eventually Jacob's fortune turns, his property increases, and then one day the Lord Yahweh tells Jacob to take his family and his property and return to the land of his father, to return to Esau, his brother. Seeing, though, uh, that last Jacob heard, his muscly, hairy brother wanted to kill him, Cain and Abel style. Jacob is, is understandably a bit hesitant to embrace this instruction. And, and it's obvious from our readings that the Jacob that is returning to the land of his father is a changed man. He's, he's matured and he's humbled. We can hear this in his prayer to God on the road um, in Genesis 32, verse 11. Um, in this verse, Jacob prays to God. He says, I'm not worthy of any of these deeds of love and faithfulness that you've shown to me by increasing my wealth, blessing my family. In other words, Jacob is saying to God, I did not procure any of this, these sheep and these oxen and these servants. I didn't didn't get any of this through my own craftiness and smarts. In fact, if anything, my devious actions should have disqualified me from such favor, but you have blessed me anyways. And Jacob asked, now please deliver me from the hand of Esau, my brother. Jacob has obviously grown up a bit. He's been taken down a peg. But Jacob is not sure that God will extend him this further grace to escape from Esau's rage. So he divides his camp into two, hoping one will escape if the other is attacked. And when he sees Esau approaching, he bows down seven times, attempting to show beyond a doubt that his usurping and lying and heel-grabbing days are over. And the space between chapter 33, verse 3, and chapter 33, verse 4, the space between Jacob bowing seven times and arriving at his brother's feet and Esau's reaction is a very significant one. And as readers, we should be pondering in the break between those verses how the story of these brothers is going to end. Will it also end in violence? Will the cycles of rivalry and bloodshed that have been un- will they be unbroken even since the days of Cain? Or will there be another way, a different kind of ending? I meant to delay to put up this slide now, but... The spoiler is here. In a, con- in a flurry of concrete verbs, verse 4 answers this question for us. Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell upon his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And we're left with the question of, well, so what, what changed here? 
Why did this story of brothers have a, have a different, a much happier ending? Why did Cain kill Abel, but Esau kisses his brother's neck? Since Easter, we here at, at Grifton UMC, we've been in the midst of a sermon series entitled God Is, exploring the character of God. And in this series, we're considering how the nature and the character of God, the God who came in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, a God who died on a cross for our sins and was raised for our redemption, how does the character of that God solve for all of the problems that we talked about in the season of Lent, the various forms of sin in ourselves and in the world? And since we have started this series, we have declared in the light of Easter that the risen God is a compassionate God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. And this week, we're going to consider the claim that God is a gracious God. God is gracious. Now, if you were following along really closely in the NIV Bibles um, that we have here while we were reading the scriptures today, you may have noticed that when I was typing up the words on the screen here, I took, I took the liberty of adjusting the translation just a little bit at two key moments. Um, it's when Jacob is assembling the oxen and the sheep and the goats that he is planning on giving Esau as a peace offering. He says that this gift is so that, for the purpose that, he might find favor in the eyes of his brother. He might find favor in the eyes of his brother. He says this both when he instructs his servants to gather the gift in chapter 32, and when he is explaining the presence of the gift to Esau after their reunion in chapter 33. And the Hebrew word here that the NIV translates as favor um, in those instances is the Hebrew ver- is the Hebrew word hen, and it is also the Hebrew word for grace. So Jacob is hoping to receive grace from his brother by offering this gift. And the difference between the Cain and Abel story and the Esau and Jacob story, it's, it's grace. That is the difference between these two stories. An infusion of godlike grace that turns the trajectory of their relationship away from the escalating violence that we saw earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 4, away from the tendency of human relationships to bring about harm and bloodshed. The godlike grace hijacks the story and instead allows Esau and Jacob's relationship to function as a, as a precursor, as a hint at what grace really means and how God's grace is given to us and to the world. And so for the rest of the time that we have together this morning, we're going to consider three quick lessons about grace that I think the story of these twins have to teach us. And think we're going to think about how they apply not only to the brother's relationship in Genesis, but also to our relationship with God. Three features of God-like grace. The first is that grace is something that is given out of delight. Grace is something that is given out of delight. When Esau forgives Jacob at the end of this story, when he forgives him for all of his deception and all of his trickery, stealing his birthright and his blessing, when he welcomes him back as a beloved brother, it is clear that he is doing this because he genuinely wants to. It gives him great delight to do this. He embraces his brother. He hugs him. He kisses him. He weeps over him. And if we just give ourselves the the freedom to use our imaginations a little bit, we we can guess why. Well, assumedly, Jacob and Esau's relationship was not solely made up of these scenes of trickery and rivalry that we have recorded for us in Genesis. It wasn't all attempts to, to throw each other out of the house. Now, they probably, they probably played sports and traded Pokemon cards or whatever the ancient equivalent of that was. Their relationship had other elements. They still shared many different kinds of bonds, and Esau was happy to extend grace to forgive Jacob his harmful actions if it meant reestablishing that bond and healing that relationship. And I really think in a similar way, we need to realize that God delights in giving us grace. He is overjoyed to forgive us of our sins. 
and to welcome us back into a relationship with him. It's not something that God does despite himself. It's not something that he does begrudgingly. Have you ever had someone like give you grace? Maybe they like let your tardiness go or they said something like, you know what, just don't worry about it when you, when you forgot something important. Like theoretically, they let you off the hook. They gave you grace, but, it, but it's clear that they did not want to do that. Uh, what they wanted to do was to like stick it to you. Like we've, we've all been there, I think. God's grace is, is not like that. It's not like that. God wants to give you grace. He wants to forgive you and to welcome you back into a relationship with him. It would give him great joy to do that. Because just like it gave Esau great joy to welcome Jacob back with bear hugs and, and, and tears, uh, it's because God loves us, as we talked about earlier in this sermon series. And not in some abstract, divine way, or at least not just in that way. God loves us in a relational way. He, he both loves you and likes you, you might say. Uh, like he had, there's that covenantal bond between creator and creation. There's that kind of love. But God, like, he likes your personality. Like, he thinks, maybe he thinks you're funny or admires your, your dependability. He loves you and can't be, and can't stand to be separated from that relationship with you. And, and giving you grace is a joyful and wonderful thing for God. The second thing that we learn about God's grace, God-like grace, is that grace is something that we do not deserve. We do not deserve. Throughout our story, um, especially the second half of the story, Jacob is actually a little bit confused about grace. He gathers this offering, this gift, this gift of sheep and oxen and cattle, in order that he might find favor in Esau's eyes, so that he might purchase grace with these goods. And this makes sense in some ways, right? Jacob knew that he did not deserve Esau's forgiveness. He, he stole something that rightfully belonged to Esau, something of almost immeasurable worth, and he did it by lying and stealing and cheating. And Jacob imagines that he might right the scales, that he might purchase forgiveness, that he might, he might purchase grace with a gift of his wealth. But the irony in the story, though, is that the moment of grace comes when Esau embraces his brother weeps over him, kisses his neck, and then says about all of the cattle and the sheep and the oxen, brother, what are these doing here? I have plenty. Keep what you have for yourself. That's the moment of grace in the story because grace, favor, is by definition something that we do not deserve. It would have, if it would have gone down like Jacob imagined that it might, Esau is like, well, I still, I still kind of want to kill you, but I guess these sheep are enough to buy my forgiveness then this would be a story without any grace, without a hint of grace. It would be a story about, about moral transactionalism. I'll trade you this for that. That's not grace. Grace is something that is unearned, unpurchased. We discussed a similar theme a couple weeks ago, um, that all of our efforts towards holiness that we undertake in our lives, and we Methodists, we, we take the attempt towards holiness very seriously. Our attempts to follow Jesus, to reject sin and evil and the powers of this world. We don't do these things, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, so that God will love us. Because God's love is a basic fact of the universe. In the same way, we don't do these things so that we might receive or purchase or earn God's grace. If that's how it worked, then it wouldn't be grace. It would be a transaction, and grace would cease to be grace. And of course, that leads us to a question. Well, so then why do we try so hard? to be better, and to be more holy, and to be more like our Savior Jesus. And this brings me to the, to the third and final point. The one who receives grace gives the gift anyway. Back to our Genesis story. 
It's afterwards, after he's received Esau's grace, that Jacob actually insists on giving his brother the gift of the sheep and the cattle and the oxen anyway. Right? Esau had said, I don't need this. I don't need this brother. And Jacob says, I want to give it to you anyway. And at that point, Esau humbly accepts the gift. And the key here is that the gift is a response to having received grace, not a way of purchasing or earning that grace. And this is exactly where our own attempts to become better people, to follow God's commands and become more like Jesus. This is exactly where those efforts fit in. They are a joyful and a loving response to grace. We try to progress as disciples of Jesus because we have received grace, not so that we might receive grace. When God joyfully gives us this unearned unearned grace, our role is to joyfully give him our allegiance and our efforts in return. And friends, it's this kind of grace, this kind of God-like grace that is able to turn a story that initially sounded a lot like Cain and Abel, to turn it into a foretaste of the cross, a hint at God's grace in redeeming the world. It's this kind of grace that will redeem the world at the end of days. And it's this kind of grace that we, as disciples of Jesus, proclaim to the nations as soon as we leave this gathering. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.